This morning, Pastor Eric is going to share with us out of Luke chapter 14, if you have your Bibles with you. I'd encourage you or your devices to, to read along. Luke chapter 14, we're reading out of the New International Version, which is most of the versions, or some of the versions, I guess, in the, in the pews, maybe not, but uh, they will be reading out of the NIV this morning. Chapter 14, it's a story of Jesus having dinner at the home of a, uh, a very respected Pharisee. And it starts in verse 15, it says this. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. And another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out into the roads and country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. <laughs> I 
Well, I never ended up in a lake, um, but I do have a very complicated relationship with my friend Siri on my phone. She never seems to be as direct or directive as I'd like her to be. Um, Just case in point, Siri, do we have a complicated relationship? Interesting question. See, she never gives me a straight answer. I have no idea. You know, one time, uh, my wife and I, we were heading to some friend's house, and I knew, and I'd been to that friend's house before, but I'd never been to that friend's house from where we were. And so we gathered the kids up, got in the van, and started heading out, and I set the address in the GPS of my phone. So we're going down a familiar highway, kind of had an idea where we were going, and the GPS, my friend Siri, directs me off of the highway. And I'm thinking, oh, okay, maybe this is a new way to get to to where we were, were going. And we were going through a few lights and twists and turns, and my wife starts to question as to the validity of my directions in my phone. And so she brings out her phone because, you know, no Siri is created equal. And she thinks that maybe her phone will guide us and direct us out of this lostness that we have, have found ourselves in. And so there's a decision that I have with me. Should I trust my wife's phone or should I trust my phone? And then in the midst of that decision, there's this common male compulsion that comes up that I don't care what your phone says. I'm the one that is going to direct our path. Well, of course, like every male story, um, I was wrong. And (laughs) I knew I was wrong when the directions had me going back onto the highway (laughs) that we had exited off of uh, 15 or 20 minutes ago. So that's the moral of the story. You lose 15 to 20 minutes sometimes if your directions are not what they should be. This is a series called One. It's a series about how we are one. It's a series about you, but it's also a series about us, how we are one, how God is calling and directing us as a corporate body of believers. And Pastor Steve started off by talking about one purpose. He talked about how our vision, our, the, 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 the vision that, that we have, the envisioned outcome that we have for our church is that we would be a, um, a Christ-centered community compelled to change the, our world. A Christ-centered community compelled to or changing, I'm sorry, changing our world. And then the mission statement that drives us, the thing that gives us fuel and and the want to is becoming an authentic community of Christ followers compelled to change our world. And then the week after, Pastor Steve talked about those values, which are really the, the vehicles by which we travel to our envisioned destination. Those are things that, Uh, not only propel us, but sometimes restrict us and help us to be on the right pathway to get to where we are going. Talked about our our core values as a church. And so over the next uh, four weeks, we talked about one purpose and one passion. And so the next four weeks, we're going to talk about one plan, one plan. It is the road by which we travel It's the roadmap, it's the blueprint, it's the plan, the direction 
the directions that, that we have. And I don't think I need to illustrate anymore <laughs> that if your directions are off, you'll end up in a lake. <laughs> That's just how it goes. And so um, notice that in the midst of all of this, and maybe you've caught on to this as Pastor C was speaking, is that this is not as much a statement about doing as it is about being, who we are, who we are becoming. And there's intention uh, behind that. Now, author Beth Moore talked about it this way. She said, to God, the journey is just as important as the destination. That as much as we are going somewhere and doing something, we are also becoming. We are being changed. We are being molded and shaped along the way so that when we travel along, we are somehow different than when we were before. And so in regards to our plan, the question is, how, what is that pathway? What is that plan for becoming? And that plan, and this is not going to be new for, for many of you that have been in the church for the last couple of years, that plan or that pathway is something we illustrate in four chairs. We have the exploring Christ chair. And then we have the growing in Christ chair. And then we have the close to Christ chair. And then the Christ-centered chair. This is not a chair to necessarily get to, but a chair in which we grow and develop to become. We are changed and molded and shaped into a Christ-centered disciple in the way that God intends for us to, to be. And so this is the plan that we're going to be talking about over the next several weeks. But today, I want to spend a little bit of time on this chair the exploring Christ chair. And it's important for me to talk about this. Uh, I loved what Rick had said and the perspective that he has, and I, I'm really excited about the, the, the growth group that he's, he's leading. But one of the things that struck me as I was sitting down here worshiping is that I was looking at all these chairs, and this is the chair that kind of blends in, doesn't it? This is the chair that's so easy to sort of lose track of and Forget, And so I want to make sure that we shine a light onto this specific chair because it's a very, very important chair. And so on to our scripture in Luke chapter 14. It's written in a time, the first century in the, in the Middle East, where there was a lot of cultural understanding around what is probably the most important piece of furniture in a home in the first century. It's not a chair, actually. It's the table. The table was the most important piece of furniture. You see, gathering around the table and having a meal was not a quick and easy type of thing. There's no fast food. There's no uh, microwave dinners. There's no roasted chicken you pick up at Giant Eagle on the way home from work. You know, there was none of that. To have a meal, to share in a meal, took a lot of time took a lot of effort, took a lot of energy of preparation. And so because there was so much effort and time and energy placed into that event, it became meaningful. There was a great deal of value that was attributed to that experience, the, the common meal. And it was a shared experience. It was common because hospitality was of the highest regard in that society. It was a shared experience where they invite people to come over and enjoy and, and join them in that, that event, the, the common meal. 
And so because it was a social event where it was common for people to invite other people over for dinner, a lot of the things and constructs and mentalities and thought processes of of society and what happened outside the walls of the home sort of leaked into that that experience of of the dinner, the, the, the common meal. And so over time, there began to develop these same mentalities that existed out there that, that there were certain people of, of prominence, uh, people, certain people of, of importance out in society. And that began to be reflected in how those, those dinner uh, seats and arrangements were made. And we know a little bit about this, right? Uh, every Tuesday, we have a staff meeting and Pastor Steve uh, gathers us together and we have our staff meeting. And like creatures of habit, and we all have our seat around the, the conference table. And I know you guys know about this because you sit in the same pews every Sunday. Don't think I haven't noticed you, all right? But we leave one seat empty. And the seat is for our lead pastor, for the person that's leading our staff meeting. You can guess where this chair is located, right? At the head of the table. We, we understand how that seating arrangement can work, but this was on... This was in hyperdrive. This was every single seat around the table was layered with meaning and intention about who was important and who was more important than others. And so through this experience, there was this great opportunity for someone of importance in society to be honored to be uh, lifted up to, to be honored for, for what they do and, and who they are. So oftentimes, it was a very sort of political thing. We'd invite certain people over to, to give them honor. But there was also a lot of um, intention and, and sort of things, expectations, things that you would do, like the placing of the different seats in the course of that, of that meal. And so even though it had this potential of providing honor for the really important people, it also had uh, the opportunity, the um, possibility of creating a great deal of dishonor and shame uh, upon a person if those different codes and expectations were, were not met. So in this table experience, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure for the host and, and who is holding it because there was all of these outside expectations about how all of that would go. And this pressurized situation, this illustration, this, this situation that has all this layered meaning within it is the exact illustration that Jesus decides to use in talking about his favorite sermon topic, which was the kingdom of God. And so he sets the stage. He talks about how a really important man had prepared a banquet and that he had sent out an initial invitation, which was common in that day. There were two typical invitations. One was more like a save the date. And then the next one was, everything's ready. It's time to enjoy the meal at my house. So they had sent out that initial invitation and those that were at the actual table, as Jesus is sharing the story, remember it's a, the house and the table of a prominent Pharisee. And so they understand how the seats that they sit in and how they're honored and, and all of that. And so they're shaking their heads, yes, as Jesus is sharing this story, and then he flips it on them. He said, but 
here in verse 18. But they all alike began to make excuses. They began to make excuses. Now keep in mind, this is a parable that Jesus is sharing. A parable is a fictional story intended to convey some sort of meaning. And in Jesus' case, he always told parables that threw this sort of theological punch. And so here are these, these guys gathered around the table, and they're shaking their heads, yes, yes, yes. And then he said, and they all began to make excuses. And their first reaction is, oh, how could they do that? And then it becomes more horrifying for them because then they begin to wonder, wait, <laughs> Wait, is, is he talking about me? Is this story about me? And in Luke's version, he elaborates. He says, well, the first one that had an excuse, he, he bought a plot of land, and he had to go tend to it. Okay, it's un- understandable. And then the next, he bought a, a five yoke of oxen, and he had to take care of the five yoke of oxen, which if you don't know, I mean, the last time I bought five yoke of oxen, a lot of work, a lot of work, believe me. And then he said, the last guy, he got married. He just got married. And the impression that Jesus is leaving is that these are all very good and understandable excuses for why they would not attend the great banquet feast. And yet these are the great excuses, these good things that people highlight and use to distract themselves and to remove themselves from that very invitation that God is giving each and every one of us. It's the good things sometimes that distract us or remove us from God. And sometimes that doesn't make sense to us because we think, well, isn't God good? And so therefore anything that is good is is of God and, and shouldn't we celebrate that? And in some cases, yes. But the real answer to that question is it depends on who is defining good. Because a lot of us are not really that great at defining good. Someone, a friend of mine, female, was telling me a story uh, recently about how she was at a department store and she was leafing through a um, section of shirts and trying to find her size and she picked out her typical size and held it up to her to see if it would, it would fit and there wasn't an, a mirror nearby so she's really kind of struggling to see oh, how would this fit and she wasn't quite ready to go into the changing room and so there was a, 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 a woman who was a little bit older than her who decided that she was going to do a good thing. She was going to come and, and help And so she comes up to my friend and says, you know, I I see that you're trying to figure out, why don't I become your mirror? Never a good idea. And so she goes back into the the clothes um, line. She leafs through the different types of shirts, the same type of shirts that, that my friend had chosen. And she picks out a shirt two sizes larger than my friend had chosen for herself. And see, I think this will fit you much better. And didn't understand why my friend was not very grateful for this person's help. We struggle with really defining what, what is good. Christians, we, we do this all the time on our mission trips 
There's all kinds of documented cases where good-hearted people that are full of, of, of intentions to serve Jesus and to make a difference for Jesus' love and, and grace and, and mercy to go into some area where the, the less fortunate are living and to do something for them. Maybe it's construction work and building something up and they go and they come back not realizing, even though they were so proud of themselves and patting themselves on the back, not realizing that they had done more harm in the poor work that they did than when they had arrived in the beginning. We don't do very well sometimes if we are the ones to define what is good and what is not so good. And yet, what I continue to hear as I talk to people and, and ask them about faith, and especially people who are not attending church or, you know, kind of just working through their different um, questions and everything like that, they, um, they use this, this idea of good as the very reason why they are not pursuing these different things. They say, well, you know, I'm a good person. And what they're saying really, they're making a statement about their level of need. And we sang about that, and Pastor Steve prayed about that, that we who have come to faith it is founded with the, the, the fundam, fundamental realization and belief that we stand in need, that we can't do this on our own. And it's that idea that we are good that often separates us from what is God. And in this case, it was the insiders, those that had already been invited, that had said, no, I'm good. I'm good. And so the host of this banquet, he does something that would not be expected. He goes back to his servants and his slaves and he says, okay, they've, they've ignored my invitation. I just want you to go everywhere. Go to the street corners. Go out in the street. The, the crippled, the poor, the lame, the blind, all those people that you normally wouldn't have in your house for dinner, just go out and invite them. I want my house to be full. <laughs> and so they did that. And then they came back and they said, well, there's still some room left. We, we did what you asked. There's still some room. He said, okay, well, go in the countryside. Go talk to those country bumpkins out there. I want my house to be full. <laughs> and in Matthew's version, it's really interesting. Uh, in Matthew's telling of the story, it's a king, and the king tells his slaves to go out and send an invitation to, to everyone on the street corner. And then he says this little thing, either good or bad. Let that sink in a little bit. And the message is clear. That God's grand banquet, the vision and the illustration of God's kingdom, includes an invitation that is for everyone. That while in society, while in this world, we like to create these dividing lines and say that there is an other, that there are people other than me, that there are people that maybe are less than me, people that I normally wouldn't have them come into my house and mess with my food and refrigerator and into my home around my table. There are certain people I wouldn't have in that space. And yet in God's vision of the kingdom, go out and invite them all. I don't care. 
invite them all. And through this, we get a little taste of God's heart, I think. God's heart of compassion for for people that we normally would cast aside, people that we normally would uh, think poorly of, and that those are the people that God loves so dearly. We get this in in Jesus' example. In Mark chapter 2, he gets himself into trouble, if you believe it or not. In Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 15, it says, And as he, he being Jesus, sat at dinner in Levi's house, Levi was a a despised tax collector, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You hear the question that they're, they're posing to Jesus? And when Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. And then in Romans 5, 8, Paul models this as well and says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For us, And this is an important message, not only for those of us that feel like we've been in the faith for a long time or people that feel that they're outside the faith or just kind of exploring things, is that you don't have to, uh, there are no preconditions to sit in this chair. You don't have to pretty up your life. You don't have to create a certain scenario in which you would be more accepted in this chair. This chair is invitational for everyone, for every person. And so if you are sitting here thinking, well, I got to get my life together before I go to church. Or, you know, I, I, need to, I need to figure some things out. I need to solve this relationship issue in my life before I come and I sit in this chair. And Jesus' invitation is saying, no, come and sit here. Come and sit here. And I will be with you and guiding you along the way. And so, if you find that you are sitting in this chair, if you're sitting right there, but you think you're, you're in this chair, I want to tell you that you're in a great place. And I love that you're asking questions. And I love that you're wondering about things that are probably bigger than yourself that you don't really have a handle on yet, but, you know, like what happens... Uh, after you die, or who is God really if, if, if God exists, and what does God really care about? What is God concerned about? And, and why do different people of faith disagree on so many different things? And why do bad things happen to good people? You've heard all of these things. If you've asked them before, you are in a wonderful, wonderful place. Because the road to travel down this, the, 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 the pathway to move from chair to chair is not to be disengaged, but to take the time to ask those particular questions. And so if you're sitting in this chair, I'm so glad that you are. And I hope that you can continue asking and searching and seeking out 
And if you're like me or like Rick or so many of us, I believe that you'll come to a place. You may not have all of your questions answered, but you're gonna come to a peace in knowing this person of Jesus Christ in the midst of your questions, in the midst of your exploration. So that's my message for all of you who are maybe sitting in that chair. But this is a series about who we are as a church. One purpose, one passion, one plan. And so I want to ask you, ask us, do our tables, does our church table, reflect God's table? Does our church table reflect God's table? Do we honor and respect and get excited about the fact that there are people sitting in this chair? Or maybe have we, have we cast them off? When I was at college, there was a group of people who would come and preach in the campus. And they would hold up banners and they were usually loud and obnoxious and their main purpose in their message, and they would go to great lengths to preach this message. They would cut scriptures in half. <laughs> they would um, give one side of what is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And their main purpose was to condemn and to produce fear. And in that process, I believe, would spend more time casting people out instead of extending that great invitation. So there's a great stir that would happen when these street pre preachers would come up and they would, you know, preach this, this message. And then as this, this sort of crowd would gather, there would be these side conversations that would spring up, and sometimes from Christians trying to damage control and other people that would have questions and, you know, kind of engaging. All. And one person that started a side conversation was this young woman this brave atheist woman. <laughs> and she was going to take on all of these Christians around her. And she was well-informed, and she was smarter than I will ever be. And she, you know, she was a science major and, you know, had the scientific bend in, in all of that. And she started talking about her arguments and points and everything. And all these Christians were getting around her and using their points and everything like that. And then they would, uh, as time grew in the midst of this sort of debate, uh, the voices would get a little bit louder and you could tell people were getting a little bit more emotional and, and defensive. And it got to this certain point where you think, oh gosh, this is not, not going to end well. And my friend Luke, my best friend, who was always in a further chair than me, <laughs> he, was, he would just sit back. He, he just sat back and he just listened. And when things got really, really tense, he walked up to this brave atheist and he said, you know, I just want to say that I'm really glad that you're asking these questions. You, look, you sound like you've been really searching through this, and I appreciate that you are asking those questions. I've asked those too. I, I kind of ended up on the other side of, of things, but I'm just so glad that you've taken the time to search and to explore. And then he walked away. And as he was walking away, though, the, the countenance of this brave atheist sort of to melt a little bit. Instead of being defensive, 
she called back to my friend who was leaving and said, thank you, thank you. Do our tables reflect the table of God? Do we express the same invitation that Jesus himself taught to the insiders and to those church folk who had gathered around the table for dinner? That's our question. And I'm going to offer a challenge to you. And this is a challenge that you can, you know, take for, for what it is. Um, I hope I hear back a little bit, but I'm not going to drill you about it. But I'm wondering if you just take a simple challenge to invite one person or family who you naturally wouldn't invite over for dinner, over for dinner. <laughs> Would you have someone over for dinner? And before you come up with lots of excuses, like you're not a good cook or... You know, the, your house is a mess and all of that. There are certainly ways around that, aren't there? You could take them out to dinner. You could bring food in. You could do a lot of those kinds of things. So I'm kind of working your way around your own arguments and excuses right now. But would you consider this? Would you consider this? Because this is the very illustration that Jesus gave to his people in that day and the invitation that he gives to each of us. Let's pray. God, some of us remember sitting in this chair. We remember it was a little exciting. And there was a lot of questions and doubt, but there was something to it. A voice sort of that was beckoning us to continue to seek. Help us to remember that time and to reach back into that, that season to remind us that, that you have called us to extend that very same invitation. Lord, bless us all on our pathway, our plan. Lord, sometimes this Christ-centered chair feels so far off. And it feels intimidating and overwhelming. But Lord, wherever we sit, wherever we are in the, the journey of faith, I pray, God, that we would experience your love and your grace and your tenderness, but also that challenge and that holy agitation that there's something more, that there's an invitation, that there's a call out to pull and to grow and to become something that, that, that we haven't before. And we all recognize that we have not arrived, but, um, but sometimes we fall into this space where we just think that we're, we're good. We're good. So Lord, help us to have an open heart to, to hear that call, that invitation. Thank you for us as a church uh, to seek faithfulness to your call and bless us as we seek to become. Place that vision of Christ-centeredness on our hearts and place within us a, a desire to 
uh, to get there and to grow and to be becoming that person. Lord, we pray this, and this is our heart, um, not because we've done anything or deserve it, but because um, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That on our own, we are so far removed from, from who you are, and a relationship has been severed. But because of the cross and through your grace and your mercy and your love, we can be in relationship with you. And we can commune with you and abide with you and, and experience you in new and, and powerful ways. So Lord, help us to be open to that. Thank you for each one of us here. In Jesus' name, amen. Something I forgot to mention, just to commend to you. We offer each one of our guests this book from Andy Stanley called, Since Nobody's Perfect, How Good is Good Enough? Good question, right? I commend that to you. That's going to be out there at our Welcome Center. Something if you haven't read, we just invite you to, to pick up. Um, something that I think you might get a lot uh, out of this week. Simple read as well. So people of God, go in the grace and the peace and the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have a wonderful week.